And while I have zero intention of getting caught up in any political discussions, our city is in a time of crisis, depending on how you look at it and how you define it. But the scriptures teach us a couple of things that I'd like us to consider this morning. And then we're going to pause and we're going to pray for our city. Uh, Regardless of how you feel about the different people in actions going on, we are called to pray for our city. We are called to seek the good of the city, to seek the renewal of the city. And we are called as aliens in this world to live as light so that while they may try to accuse us, just what Sai was talking about but a moment ago, while people don't necessarily seek our good, they see the goodness and greatness of God in us. If you've been following along in our Gospel and Life series, you turned to Jeremiah chapter 29 a few weeks ago. In, in that, God, talking to the Hebrew exiles in Babylon, says, Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you will prosper. And then if you go over to First Peter, we're told this, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world, we all are. Those of us in Christ, we know our home, our citizenship is in heaven. It is not here. This isn't all there is. We look forward to the restoration of the new heavens and the new earth. But in doing so, we are to abstain from evil desires, sinful desires, which war against our soul and battle our heart. We're going to talk about that in just a few moments. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. What I'd like us to do this morning is pause. And I'd like you to pray silently for your city. God has brought us to Hong Kong. Some of you were born here. This has been your home your whole life. Some of you are aliens that just got here last week. Others of you have been here for a season. But this is home. This is where God has brought us. And much like Mordecai, told Queen Esther, who knows, but God may have you here for such a time as this. So would you pause with me as we pray for the people of Hong Kong? Lord, I thank you that you allow us to live in such a great city. It is not perfect. There is much darkness here. The poverty can be overwhelming The wealth gap is discouraging to say the least. The cost of living can be disheartening. The way certain people are treated is discouraging. We have riots, we have protests, we have a government that many people feel many things about. So today, Lord, we ask for you to work. We pray that you would be the God of this city. I think of the leaders, I think of the police, the government, and all of those that are seeking how to handle these latest rounds of discontent and these protests. And I pray that they would lead with righteous lives. I pray that they would be gracious and disciplined, but they would follow your will, that they would seek the approval of God, not man. I pray for those involved in the protests, those involved in these activities, Lord, that they would not be torn asunder, but their hearts would be turned toward you, the living God who is as at work today as he was 5,000 years ago. And God, in this, what man has torn asunder, we ask that you would bring together, 
not for the namesake of Hong Kong that it might be glorified, but for your namesake that you would be glorified, that we would exalt you as king, that we would be a theocracy, that we would seek the good of Hong Kong and in it that you would be glorified. Lord, I don't know all the details that are going on, but I know you've brought us here for such a time as this. I pray that you would renew this city. I pray that you would guard our hearts, that you would protect our hearts, that we would seek the peace and welfare of this city for your name's sake and for your glory and for your purpose. And finally, Lord, I pray for us at Alliance International Church that we would be light in this dark world. You have changed our lives and we can't ever thank you enough for that. And so I ask that in such a time as this, that we would live out your glory here on earth, that we would follow the example of your son and offer ourselves to be used up however you see fit. For you are our king. Lord, we love you and we love the place you've placed us. Maybe some more than others, but this is home. So would you let us be light in this city? In your name I pray, amen. Do continue to pray for Hong Kong. I don't have the answers, but I know God is God and he has a plan and we will seek the welfare of our city. Well, today we continue on and we look at the gospel in our hearts. Now, when we talk about that, that sounds kind of much more philosophically based than when we think about the gospel in the city. We know right away that the good news needs to go to the city. But when we think about our hearts, we think about all sorts of things. If you grew up or if you lived in the 80s, especially in North America, heart disease was rampant and it was the topic of great discussion. Everyone had high cholesterol and and granted our our eating habits in North America specifically uh, certainly added to that. But there became such a great concern for heart disease, a very real concern that people began trying all sorts of diets and you moved into the 90s and uh, Adkins and South Beach and this and that and the others and all these things were tried to fix the condition of our broken, clogged hearts and arteries. And we look at the hearts of people in the church and not too long ago, we, we did a series on our identities in Christ. I am a new creation. In Christ, I can have confidence because I'm justified. I am righteous because of the blood of the lamb of what Jesus has done. But yet if I sit down and I talk to you, Many times I'll hear people share with me, Mike, I have regrets. I wish I could go back and do it differently. Well, I've thought a lot about that for the past couple of weeks because two of my favorite sports stars, not quite heroes, but I sure think the world of them have retired recently. And one of them you might recognize. The other one, I'll spare you the details, but some of you may recognize this lady. Anybody know who this is? Lena. You know anything about her? She is the first Chinese tennis player to ever win at the very top and highest levels of tennis in the world. She revived tennis in Asia. In fact, her hometown is finishing hosting a tournament in Wuhan right now, today. And it's a premier level event. Tennis in China 10 years ago pretty much didn't exist. She is amazing. And if you ever heard her interviewed, she was funny. 
She won, when she won the Australian Open earlier this year, she was telling the people, thank you to all these different people. And then she looked at her husband and she sh- looked at him directly and she said, you should thank me. I've given you a better life and given you more money. <laughs> she has a sense of humor about her and she was real. She still is real. She's not dead. But due to health, she has retired from tennis. And my point isn't lean on what a wonderful person is she is. I pray for her salvation. I don't know if she knows Jesus, but I pray she will come to know him. Um, but in that, this week, while she is in Wuhan, Sports Illustrated was able to interview her. And, you know, she's a, 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 an athlete in high demand because she's famous and whatnot. And one of the things she said was, I have no regrets. And then she went on to talk about, well, I could have done this this differently or that differently. And you think to yourself as you're reading through the article, well, you're pleased with the outcome, but it sounds like you still do wish maybe things had gone a little differently. And a lot of us live that way in our spiritual journeys. We know that if we've been washed by the blood of the lamb, if we are truly forgiven and set free, that we should be able to leave the past behind and press on, taking hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of us. But yet we can get stuck. And when we think about the gospel, we have to go back and remember what the gospel is and who it's for. It's for all people and it's powerful. The good news of Jesus Christ, that his life and subsequent death and resurrection were the atoning sacrifice, the way that brought us back into right relationship with God, our father who is in heaven. That is powerful. And it is also transformational. It changes our lives if we truly understand and live it out. And that's why the third point is, it's to be lived out. And I'm going to go real fast today. So if you've got these outlines and I miss a blank, I'll give it to you afterward. Deal? But in that, we are invited to know that we have been forgiven. That we have been justified. If you've already gone on to week two in the gospel in life, the gospel in the heart, you know, we're ta- we talk about justification. It's just as if I had never sinned. That we have right standing before God. But Mike, you say, Paul teaches me that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Absolutely true. Each one of us is a sinner. But those who have believed in the good news of Jesus Christ have been saved by the greatness and justice and grace of God who gave his one and only son for us that we might have life, that we might be brought back into a right relationship with God, not just for now to have meaningful life here on earth, but for all eternity. And that, my friends, is transformational. And it should change how we live. It should change how we interact with the political upheaval we see all over the world. I read an article this week that back in my homeland, a radical uh, newly professing Muslim, I don't know whether he actually is or not, but somebody that said he was went into a a store and grabbed a, a lady and cut her head off. We live in troubled times. People need to know that the good news of Jesus Christ is for them and it changes our lives and it changes how we live and it gives us purpose that is beyond democracy. It is beyond our bank accounts. It is beyond the things of this earth.
And today I want to look inwardly at our hearts and how we interact with that. Blaise Pascal, a famous philosopher and mathematician, said, in every one of us, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man. Now, let me pause in case there's any English as a second language thing. It is not God inside our hearts vacuuming our hearts. That actually comes later at the point of salvation. God does cleanse us and washes us by his blood. You could say your sins are vacuumed and sent away. But here what he's saying is a black hole vacuum, okay? There is a need. There is a hole that can only be filled not by any created thing, but only by God, the creator made known through Jesus Christ. And so today, I thought the best way to look at our hearts is to begin and end with the same question, who has your heart? So think about that that for a second. If you are newly in love, oh, my heart beats for fill in the blank. If you've been married for a few years, how you doing? (laughs) Suddenly, my heart doesn't beat for her anymore. But we have to be careful because our hearts, in Hebrew tradition, when the word heart was used, it was actually a word that meant the center. The heart was considered the center of life. It was out of which the intellect came, out of which our thoughts, our feelings, our actions came. Jesus teaches us that for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So in other words, your heart, not just the physical organ, but more along the lines of your soul and the center of your being, for out of that, the mouth speaks. It's connected with your intellect and with your mind. And if you want to know what's going on, look at someone's heart. And in our hearts, for those of us in Christ, they should be full of the greatness of God. And we shouldn't be able to shut up about his glory. And we shouldn't be able to contain the love that we have for our neighbors because of the greatness of God that resides in us. We are told throughout the scriptures that man is the dwelling place of two parts of the Trinity. Christ finds his dwelling in us and the spirit lives within us. This is our heart. Isn't it exciting to know that God is in you? If you've believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and if you don't know Jesus, he's saying, I'm ready. Here I am. Believe in me and you will have life for now and all eternity. It's where we get the phrase, ask Jesus into your heart. Well, it's because he says, I'll come in and I'll take up residence there and make it my home. Notice he says, make it my home. Whose heart does it become? Jesus. We give away our hearts. Remember what Tanya told us last week, and it's an exchange legally. We offer our lives so that we can take on the life, the name, the person of Jesus Christ. Well, In the Old Testament lived a people. They were chosen by God, not just to be special and let's say, look at me, we are better than you. But they were actually set apart by God to be his messengers into the whole world to show the glory of God. And these people were called a few different names over the course of history. First, they were known as the Israelites. Then they became known as the Hebrew people. Uh, Today, we often know them as Jewish. Okay, you've, you've followed with me so far. 
And in that process, after a while, the Hebrew people, the, the, the phrase I prefer because that's the language they spoke, uh, the Hebrew people felt that they knew what was best for them better than God. But we've never done that, right? We have never known what God tells us to do and then done our own thing. That's just not something human, humanity does today, I say sarcastically. But the, but the Hebrew people looked at their, at their judge. They weren't ruled by a king. They were ruled by God. I, I prayed that we would be a theocracy, that God would rule us, that God would rule our hearts. Well, for the people then, they were praying and, and they sought Samuel out and they said, we want to be like all the other nations. We want to be like everybody else. Today, that might mean you got to drive the right car, live in the right flat and go to the right schools and have the right job and know the right people. For the people then, it meant they wanted a king. And so God, much to the chagrin of Samuel, the judge, gave them what they asked for. And he anointed a guy named Saul. And man, Saul was a good looking guy. Throughout the scriptures you read, he was tall. So I could never be king. We learn that he was handsome. Ladies, you would have loved him. We learned that he was tall and handsome is pretty much what they said about him and that he was strong. And, you know, in the eyes of man, everything about Saul looked great. This is the guy that's going to be an awesome king. But how'd Saul do as the king of the people of Israel, God's chosen covenantal people? (laughs) Time and again, Saul said, I'm not going to wait on God and do what he wants. I'm going to do my own thing. There's a recurring pattern here. And over time, we're told in the scriptures that Saul's heart was actually hardened by God. He had turned so far away from God that his heart became like a rock. And at that point in time, something else happens. God tells Saul, through the person of Samuel, that his kingdom would be taken away from him and given to another. And the person that it would be good, that it would be given to, would be a man after his own heart. And he would be appointed leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. God is serious about obedience. While we love to talk about grace, we don't often like to talk about obedience. Jesus tells us, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. The same was true in the Old Testament. God knows what's best for us. And if he knows what's best for us, the best thing for us to do is to obey him. Correct? This is, to me, it's common sense. But yet, as we'll get to, it can be misinterpreted. And so you flip over a couple chapters in 1 Samuel. The judge uh, was the one credited writing. But the Lord said to Samuel, you see, Samuel was told to go to the house of Jesse. Four miles from where he was, was this little town, oh, little town of? Come on. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, also known forevermore as the city of David. Okay? Samuel was told to go to the house of Jesse, and from that family... From that family would be the next king of Israel, a man after God's own heart. So sure enough, the sons come out first with Eliab. And Eliab was tall, yes, and handsome. And Samuel thought, surely this must be the one. Nope. 
six more brothers went by. All the ones that were around. And none of them were it. And Samuel looks at Jesse, who's a little bit confused, I think. And he's like, is that it? Are there no more sons? This is great fathering 101. Oh yeah, there's one more. I forgot about him. If you have multiple children, it has happened to you. Don't disagree. <laughs> you know this to be true. Jesse's like, my youngest son, David, is out shepherding the flock. Interesting that kings were often known to be good shepherds. And that that very truth follows into the New Testament to the person of Jesus who is our good shepherd. That David, the very one that was about to be anointed king of Israel, also was the one that wrote, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The one that knew what fear that was nothing like we've ever experienced and could turn to God and lay his cares upon him. And here we see that God tells Samuel, Man does not look at the outward appearance. Or man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And we come right back to the fact that the heart in the soul of man is where it all happens. And God wants to know who's in control of our hearts. And he knows our hearts. And as we continue, we learn in Jeremiah, you go through into the exilic period, David had been king and he was known as the greatest king of Israel of all time. And we'll talk about why some of you might scratch your heads at why he would be named the greatest king of Israel in a moment. But we're also told that the heart is deceitful, that the heart can lie to us. And you think, Mike, that doesn't make sense. You say the heart is the very essence of who I am. How does it lie to me? I know what it's doing and what's going on. And I say, yeah, but let's think about it like this. Have any of you heard of dyslexia? Some of you know what dyslexia is. Dyslexia is a somewhat common learning disorder challenge where you look right and see the right words on the, the, in what you're reading or the right numbers in front of you, but your brain doesn't get the message correctly. So what we're going to do today is we're going to take a second and we're going to practice and we're going to begin to look at how our hearts can tell us stories that are not reality. So what I want you to do is read this for just a second. If you are dyslexic, you will understand this better than I ever will. But when you see Q, Z, not Z, Z, P, B, or Y, S, you convert those over to what's over here, D or T, M, B, P, R. Okay? You got that? No? Good. Go. Now read that. Okay, good. This isn't a test. Well, it is, but it's not. This is to give you an idea. And sometimes what happens to us as humans is instead of seeing the world as God invites us to see the world, our heart gets deceived and mangles up the message. 
And we begin to think that reality is about money or sex or pride or pleasures of this world. And we can't interpret what is right in front of us because what you really should have been seeing is that we begin our trip at a familiar place. A body like yours and mine, it contains a hundred trillion cells that I would add made by God miraculously that work together by design. And within each one of these many cells, each one that has DNA, the DNA is exactly the same, a mass-produced resume, and it's amazing. But yet when you go back, huh? So what does that have to do with Mike's sermon? Everything. The heart is deceitful. And if we are not guarded and we are not rooted, we begin to believe the lies the devil tells our heart. That this world is about comfort. That this world is all there is. That this world wants me to give my everything, to forsake my family for the sake of that extra few dollars. That the hours I put in the office are more important than my time with the Lord. And our heart's attention is ripped away and it's deceived by the trappings of this world. And if we're not careful, our hearts become hard to where God hasn't stopped speaking, which is often a a thing pastors hear. And they always have to be real careful if someone comes up to a pastor and says, God's no longer talking to me. I I, I like to use the cell phone example. And I said, well, have you called him? Because what happens over time is our very lives get so caught up in the ways and the works of this world that God has been pushed out of our hearts and we have been deceived into thinking that this is more important than his glory. Not so different from a dyslexic person that's just trying to figure out how to make sense of the world. We tell ourselves that we've made sense of it and it's money, status, success, and power. Well, we're not the first ones to do that. I'll put these verses up on the screen and then I'll tell you a story. King David was a man that from the very beginning was said to be a man after God's own heart. That is high praise. The only person in the entire Bible that it was ever said about was David. Man looked at the outward appearance and God looked at David's heart and said, that's the king of Israel. David was chosen to follow God wherever God would lead. David was the man that defeated a nine-foot giant with one stone. David was the man that served in Saul's court, soothing his troubled mind. So not only, by the way, men, you can feel insignificant about yourselves. And I think I've said this before. When you think about David, he was athletic. He killed a guy with one stone. You know, he knew how to whip a a slingshot. He was musical. He wrote beautiful melodies to soothe the troubled king's soul that he was anointed to replace. He was then hunted by said king. And when times came where he had the opportunity to kill King Saul, he wouldn't do it. Why? Because he said, I will not touch a hair on the head of God's chosen man. He trusted 
in God's work. He trusted that God's timing was perfect. I can't imagine knowing that I was chosen for such a high and mighty calling, yet there's this guy screwing it all up right in front of me, and now he's trying to kill me, and his son is my best friend. Sounds like an episode of a famous TV show today. It's very confusing. But in all of that, David got it right for a long time. And when he took leadership of Israel, he united the tribes together and they moved forward with their leader, their warrior king, leading them into battle, restoring Israel to its rightful place. But then one time, David needed a vacation or a staycation actually. And so David sent Abner, Joab, sent him out to battle. I said, I'm going to stay home even though I'm the king and I'm the one that should be leading my people into battle, you guys take care of it. Mistake number one, he didn't obey what the Lord had charged kings to do, lead their people. Mistake number two, he goes up onto a roof and he sees a pretty young thing and he says, I gotta have her. He turned the woman of Bathsheba into an item of desire that he had to have. Didn't know anything about her, only based on looks, much like the allure of pornography today. You know nothing about the people you're looking at, but they're right in front of you and you'd make them an object of your affection and our heart is deceived. And David sought to do something about this deception. He was convinced that he had to have this woman and Bathsheba was said to be beautiful beyond compare. And so he found out who she was and he was told, isn't that... Uriah the Hittite's wife. Now let's stop and think for a minute about who Uriah the Hittite was. He was one of David's mighty men. What does that mean today? Today think um, British Special Forces. What are they called? SAS. He was an SAS agent for David. He was one of the best of the best. If you're an American, he was a Navy SEAL. He was the top, the best fighter, the best warrior. And David realized, nuts, I've now slept with and impregnated the wife of one of my best warriors. I'm going to need to deal with this problem. So now he has committed adultery and he has begun to conceive a plan to deceive not only man, but God. He's still charged with being the king of all of Israel. And then he goes a step further and he sends a letter to his general saying, send Uriah up to where the fighting is the fiercest. In other words, if there is a wall and you're taking a city and the archers are shooting down from you at above, the last guy you want to be is the first guy up at the front of the line because your job and your service to the king will not be long. You're not going to survive. And David knew that well. And he sent one of the men that was fighting for God and fighting for David and he sent him to his death. In today's terms, we call that murder. A man after God's own heart was a coward that didn't go out to fight, was an adulterer that impregnated a woman that was not his wife, and was a murderer that then murdered the actual husband of Bathsheba. This is the man God says is a a man after his own heart. I'm confused. Well, the long and short of it is David had allowed his heart to be deceived. 
And it wasn't the last time, but it's the only time we're going to talk about today. Because God, in his great mercy and justice, sent a prophet named Nathan to talk to David, to deal with the situation at hand. And Nathan tells a story of how a rich man takes everything from a poor man that only had little. And David reacts in anger, that man should die. And Nathan looks at him, points him dead in the eye. And remember, this is the king. You say anything negative about a king, you don't get chance number two, you're dead. And Nathan looks at him and he says, that man is you. You are the murderer. You are the killer. You are the sinner. David's got two chances here. He can kill Nathan, a kingly thing to do. And you know what? No one would have ever known. God did. Or he could deal with the sin that was now right in front of his face. See, the amazing thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God is inviting us back. I hope none of you have killed someone. I hope our marriage beds are pure. I hope our thought lives are holy and righteous. But we have sinned. And in that sin, it's how we deal with that we're invited to consider this morning in the condition of our hearts. And just look at what we listened to earlier. David begs out and he cries out to God, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. In there, anywhere, do you see him saying, I can fix myself? No. David understands something we have forgotten today. Sin is an issue that is bigger than us. We cannot save ourselves. We need help. He says, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He needs cleansed. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Maybe there's been a time in your life where you've done something so wrong that it just, you can't get it out of your mind. The guilt just stays with you. You look at somebody and you think they know and you begin to second guess what everything everyone is saying about you because the spirit of fear has overtaken you because the sin is taking over your heart and deceiving you. And David is right there. And by God's grace, he gave us the words to walk through this journey with him and learn from him uh, how, how we deal with failure when our hearts begin to turn away from God. And so what do we learn as we look at Psalm 51? We don't have time. I could preach for months on Psalm 51. It's one of the most honest and transparent looks at a relationship with God you can find in all of Scripture. And it points to the work of Jesus Christ in miraculous and prophetic ways. But it's also a very real man dealing with very real failure before God. He tells us against you and you only have I sinned. My transgressions are before me. I can't get away from them. Help! And I bet if we're honest with ourselves, every single one of us can relate to that. So what did David do in his prayer to God begging for restoration? Well, let's look. When we look at the gospel in our hearts, we can learn from David. He acknowledged his sin and he confessed it. God does not need you to sugarcoat your sin. 
He already knows you've done it. He's inviting you to be set free from it by laying it at the foot of the cross. He already knows what it is. Remember, it's God who knows the heart. He knows what we've done. And David shows us by example what John teaches us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and purify us by all unrighteousness. Second, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. You see, when your heart begins to get more and more darkened by sin, your very attitude changes. How you look at the world changes as we've already talked about. Suddenly you might be angry for no reason. Well, there is a reason, sin. Suddenly it might be harder for you to listen to people share what's going on in their lives because you just wanted to tell them about your life. Well, the sin of self-idolization is taking over. You only care about those that care about you. And we're invited here to beg God to renew a right spirit within us. Not only that, but he said, God, as you purify me, I'm going to teach other sinners to do the same thing, to come back to you. Sounds a lot like discipleship, doesn't it? Sounds a lot like, if you'd like the right word that we use, multiplication. You with me? When Jesus Christ has changed our lives, we should not and must not shut up about him. Because if all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory... Someone very close to you needs to know he loves them and can set them free from their broken lives. Just as he's done that for you. And see, this point can stick us. Because some of us know that we've been forgiven, but our heart doesn't believe it. What does that look like? It means we know in our minds the truth but we haven't yet accepted that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins and that we have been justified, that God sees us as righteous and holy, not because of what we've done, but because he's God. And Jesus lived the righteous life that was an acceptable sacrifice before God for us. It's called justification. And when you know that, you can live with confidence that your sins will not be counted against you because they're on the ocean floor. They're gone. But we forget that we can have confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And therefore we don't teach others. Then, and this I love, you know someone that's living in the freedom of Jesus Christ when they can't shut up and stop being thankful for who God is. They're not just thanking God that it's a beautiful day, which is great. They can thank God that there are drills going on right over there that are driving me crazy. We're all thinking about it, so I'll say it. They can praise God that his ways are higher than our ways. They can praise God that in the most difficult and painful of circumstances, he is still God. David, this man writing this, was a man that more people wanted him killed than anybody I can think of. The king that was over him, who he worked for, wanted him dead. His sons wanted him dead. A whole lot of other nations wanted him dead. He was a marked man, and yet he could praise God. And he could glorify God in any and all situation. He also knew how to be honest with God. Read the Psalms. David wrote a good chunk of them. And David, in 
good times and bad, was willing to cry out to God first. Notice there's nothing here about me, 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 other than cleanse me, God. This is all you. I got into this mess and I can't get out of it. God, help. He turns to God. Then, and this is key, he acknowledged his brokenness. You are some amazing people in this room. I've heard your stories and I think, wow, you are so much smarter, better looking, uh, wealthier, more knowledgeable of scripture, whatever. There's a long list. You guys are amazing people and I genuinely love you. But, there's a but. There's always a but. We're broken people. And some of us need to be able to live in the freedom that comes from God restoring us. It's only he that can do it. And he invites us into restoration through the work of his son, Jesus Christ, who gave his life as a ransom for many, for us. You see, David knew how to acknowledge that he had sinned and how to cry out to God and let God begin to restore his heart. What about us? What do we do with a broken heart? Well, it's interesting you should ask. Because in verse 7, David cries out, cleanse me with his hyssop. Anybody know what a hyssop branch is? It's a branch that has hyssop on it. (laughs) It smells pretty. And interestingly, if you go back to the very beginning of the Bible into Leviticus, you'll learn that hyssop was always used in atoning sacrifices. It was always used to cleanse that which needed to be cleansed before the sacrifice. Now here in Psalm 51, David prays, cleanse me with hyssop. Now, this is amazing. And it, to me, it's just Incredible how God works. If you go into the New Testament and you read of the crucifixion of our our Lord and God and King, Jesus Christ, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth and they prepared the lamb for the sacrifice of all. That should take your breath away. God is not just God of the Old or New Testament. His plan for redemption has been consistent throughout, even down to a hyssop branch. It just amazes me every time I think about it. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. The demand for justice had been met by he who knew no sin becoming sin for us. We have failed. Our hearts have chased after all sorts of things. Yet Jesus went to the cross, was prepared as an atoning sacrifice for you and me and said, it's done. I got this. You're set free. Well, how do we respond to that? Simple. 
And I'll finish by going through a few examples, but let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That question I referred to earlier, we come back to here. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace, not a peace of this earth. In fact, Jesus tells us, I came to bring a sword while you proclaim my word. Not everybody's going to accept it, but be thankful. Let the word of Christ, the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. Again, there's that concept, teach other sinners how to be restored back to God with all wisdom. As you sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude. We talk in Hong Kong and we're fighting about it right now, the rule of law. This is the rule of heart. Who rules your heart? And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, who makes his dwelling in us, giving thanks. There it is again, giving thanks to God the Father through the work of the Son. So ladies and gentlemen, today, how do we live the gospel in our hearts? It's simple. One, acknowledge we are God's creation. If you were with us for the Ravi Zacharias conference last weekend, you heard that we are made in the image of God. He made our hearts. He knows how many trillion cells are in your body. He knows how many hairs are lack thereof are on your head. And he loves you. But our hearts are easily deceived because sin taints us. We choose man's ways over God's ways and we believe the lies. But... Our sins can be dealt with and atoned for and we can repent and we're invited into that through the work of Jesus Christ, our atoning sacrifice. And finally, when our hearts are freed, we can't help but confidently, don't miss that word, confidently spread the good news. How many of you were born or would call a nation other than Hong Kong your home? Awesome, and I think some of you missed the question because I'm looking it around and not all of you would... Okay, how many of you carry a non-Hong Kong passport? Look at that for just a second and think about if we went wherever God has us, whether it's next door or all over the world, with just the 210 people roughly in this room right now, and we said, have you met Jesus? Think about the impact that Alliance International Church, by the power of God at work in us, preaching the good news that Jesus has changed our hearts, could do to countries in desperate need of a Savior, like the Philippines, like America, like Canada. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Like New Zealand, like China, like Australia. Thank you. And I'm missing so many. And I love Canada. Please don't misunderstand. But you get the idea. God has us here for a time as this. If you have been washed by the blood, if your heart is the Lord's, I invite you today to sing with me in just a moment, I surrender all. And then go out and ask people, have you met Jesus? Let me tell you about him. Because he changed my heart. And I am no longer a dyslexic human. I've been set free. And I know whose I am. Lord, I thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. While I wish David had done it differently and I wish I had done many things differently, I thank you for what we can learn through lives like his. And God, today, I pray that you would 
change our hearts, that you would renew and restore us to the way you created us to be, that we might go out into all the world and make disciples of all nations. I think of people like Sai going into very hostile territory, and I pray that you would strengthen he and his family and their team to be used by you. I think of all of us that come into this country that is not our home, that we are aliens and exiles, that you would use us to make disciples of all nations. But God, most importantly today, renew our hearts. Whatever has begun to darken our very soul, Lord, please bring us back to you through confession and restoration. We love you, Lord. We need you. Fill that hole with your Holy Spirit and cleanse us once again. Amen.